Hey, 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 everybody. It is Nick Bradley here. Welcome to Scale Up for another week. Joining me on the mic today is my good buddy, Brad Weimert. Now, at his core, Brad is an entrepreneur, but he is also an adventurer, an endurance athlete. The, uh, <laughs> the astute of you out there are probably going, I know where this conversation is going to end up today. Yes, and you would be right. We are going to talk about marathons and running and all that stuff. But don't leave just yet because what we're really going to get into today is how you can take the various disciplines that we, we get from other areas of our life and how we can apply them to be successful in entrepreneurship. One of my mantras in endurance is slow down, but don't stop. As soon as you give yourself a data point and it feels good, you better believe that you're going to seek that one out again. So a bit more context about Brad. By the age of 20, he was breaking national records as the number one sales rep in a company with, get this, over 30,000 people in its sales force. He then went on to found Easy Pay Direct, which is a payment gateway, and it has something like 60,000 merchants on its books right now, helping to facilitate high-level e-commerce. But what we really get into today is that transition. How do you make that transition from being successful in sales, in marketing, in some sort of function in a business to becoming a successful entrepreneur? You have to spend the time. You can use the word visualizing, you can use the word planning, but you have to spend the time thinking about how you're going to handle both success and failure in the future. We're gonna get into all sorts of things around starting up and scaling up. And to bring it back to endurance sports, we're going to talk about how the disciplines of mindset, taking action, preparing in advance, and risk management can translate into the world of business. So this is an action-packed conversation. I promise to not geek out too much about running and all that sort of stuff. Welcome to Scale Up with Nick Bradley, Brad Wyman. Hey, everybody. It is Nick Bradley here. Welcome to Scale Up for this week. Today's episode, I have my good friend, Brad Wymott, on the show. We are going to talk about all things business and entrepreneurship. Actually, that's the intention. We think we're going to talk about that. <laughs> but actually, we're probably going to talk about endurance sports and stuff like that, Brad, don't you think? I think that's probably a safe bet. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just setting the stall out early. Right, so the listeners go, oh shit, Nick's going to go into that that angle, that tangent again. The God, crazy place. No. <laughs> but there is a reason. There is a reason behind this, right? Because one of the things I've been exploring recently is how you've got to have, you know, elements of balance. I'm not going to say have a balanced perspective on everything because I don't think that's 100% true. But I'm starting to lean more into things that light me up and get me fulfilled because when you have different seasons in business and entrepreneurship, it's very easy to sometimes forget those things right? It kind of yeah. sneaks up on you. So we're going to touch on that today. But firstly, Brad, welcome. Thank you. I appreciate that. I think the other thing that is just relevant is it's more fun to listen to people talking about the things that light them up. Oh, so yeah. I go to like the routine <laughs> question is, what do you do when you go to parties or any, every, anywhere you are? People are like, what do you do? And it's such a terrible question because what they're really asking is what box can I put you in for like money and business and life? And my chosen question for that is, how do you spend your time? Oh, much better. Because you're right. Well, if, I, someone, if someone, okay, let's, let's take it to the extreme, the first question, right? What do you do? Oh, I do such and such, right? I, I'm a, a, um, a parking inspector, right? <laughs> okay. Right. Like so, straight, straight away, you're put into a box of 
probably boring, not particularly ambitious, but no one knows yeah. the true story, right? But you're right. It doesn't tell anything that's maybe more important to know about someone. And that's actually what I want to know when I'm trying to get to know somebody is like, I fundamentally believe that relationships are the foundation of everything else in life. And so what I want to know is how they choose to spend time. And yeah, I want to know like the level of success or whatever at some point in some relationships. But what I really want to know is like, what excites you? And that's going to tell me the rest, right? And then yeah. that's the foundation to learn the rest. Because if, if I'm not excited by that part, I don't really give a fuck what you do. Can I swear? Am I allowed to say fuck? Oh yeah, yeah. We we we, we temper it a little bit. Otherwise, I get okay. that stupid little PG rating <laughs> thing that comes on from Apple. Um, okay, know, when, fair. They, when they listen in, right, to our yeah. stuff. But you know, I, yeah. Um, but, you know, I I think it's an interesting thing because uh, there's two parts to it, right? If you ask someone how do they spend their time, and they light up, you also learn a little bit more about who they are, right? You start to see the things that they not not so much how they spend their time, but also their values. Right. And things yeah. like that and connection points. Whereas if you ask the the dull question, <laughs> like question one, um, and someone maybe isn't as inspired in that area of their life, right? Certainly their work area, you're not going to get the best of them. No. No, I have a I have a, a friend who um sorry, we're immediately going into the endurance rabbit hole. Uh so I have a friend who <laughs> I'm gonna pull you in and out. So everyone get ready for this. <laughs> Good. It's gonna be difficult because Brad loves this stuff. I have, a, I, have, so I have a friend who, uh, uh, if you asked him what he did, he would tell you that he fixes hail damage on cars and houses. Right. Now, it turns out he also ran across the Saharan desert on foot by himself. Actually, he had a little team. But it was something like, you know, it's like 5,600 miles and he was averaging 52 wow. miles a day. So that's not for that's 111 days. Style. That's that's not the event that they they you know they bring you out sort of opera singers at nighttime. This is proper running across like like Whoa. sort of like doing bad water but on steroids. Yes. <laughs> on steroids, right? 111 <laughs> days doing 52 miles a day. Crazy. But you wouldn't get that. His name's Charlie Angle, but you wouldn't get that. Oh yeah, okay. If you didn't ask the right question, right? Yeah. What do you do? Well, he might just say I run, but <laughs> how do you spend your time? Well, let's 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 kick this around. Let's kick this around a bit. So, we are we. I know how you spend your time. Listeners don't know how you spend your time, but let's talk about how you do that, <laughs> and more importantly, the way that you diversify your time. Let's get into a bit of breadth here. So, if someone said to you, "How do you spend your time?" and you were going to give them the full picture, how yeah. would you answer that? Um, I. I have spent a lot of time running historically, though I do not self-identify as a runner. Um, <laughs> I Why spend is that? a lot of time out of curiosity. Why don't is, is that is that because of a stereotype or a perceived stereotype? No, it's uh I just think that I also don't really self-identify as an endurance athlete. I think that there are people in every class that are like top of class that are elite and the only way that I would call myself a runner is if I felt like I was an elite runner. Otherwise, nice. I'm like, okay. I'm kind of just messing around. You could, <laughs> like, an, like, you could be an amateur runner. You could be a um, endurance enthusiast. I could <laughs> be an endurance enthusiast. I like that one. Nobody wants to be an amateur. That's terrible. No, I know. It's not but, a nice word. <laughs> no, I mean, I don't anyway. Uh, and uh, yeah, you know, I'm kind of always looking for um, adventures. So the running thing really to me is an adventure. And we can, we can fill that gap with anything. Uh, and then, you know, I'm an entrepreneur. I spend a lot of time with, uh, easy pay direct is, 
a huge chunk of my time. Um, and, uh, yeah. And then beyond a million is the podcast, but like, that's where most of my time goes today is finding some adventure, easy pay direct and talking to cool people on a podcast. There you go. That's not a bad way of living life. Let's get into yeah. how you got into all of this, right? Okay. So let's break it down into business first, and then we can kind of get into obviously the endurance side of stuff. Um, cause we yeah. have that connection so we can riff back and forth, but how did you first identify as an entrepreneur? Um, man, honestly, I really only have recently started to identify as that. And which is funny because I'm 42 and easy pay direct is more than a decade old. Um, but I grew up, uh, in sales. Uh, so I got into sales when I was 18 and I didn't even have much sort of confidence in the capacity to sell. And when I told people years later that the people that I grew up with, they were like, Oh no, you were selling your whole life. Like I would sell wrapping paper in middle school and win our little contest in middle school. Uh, but I had somehow lost that. And when I found this sales company, uh, I had a manager that just managed me well, meaning that he gave me a program to run and inspired some confidence in the program. And he said, just do this stuff. And so I did the stuff and people bought things. And they applauded me and they're like, great job. That's amazing. <laughs> and I was like, I, I thought that's what I was supposed to do. And it turns out that most people in sales and in other areas of life don't just follow the program and they don't put enough energy in to actually run the numbers and see the statistics work out. Um, and so I was fortunate to have a sales manager early on that just encouraged me to do that. Um, and that got me on this track in sales um, very early. So I self-identified then as a salesperson. And even then I knew like, I wasn't a great salesperson, but I could fucking outwork anybody. So let's and pause so I, on this because there's a couple yeah. of things there that are interesting to sort of distinctions to talk through. So the, fir the first piece, piece is really about just following, following the process, right? The paint by numbers type of thing. Like do this yep. and you'll get a result. Why do you think, why do you think people struggle so much with that? Right. As a concept, because like, you know, I've seen people who like, let's say there's someone trying to get to seven figures and I know you've got your podcast beyond a million and all that sort of thing. Right. And you get these really intelligent people that have come from, say, the world of corporate or they've been, you know, senior managers and something. They try and come into that and they, they overthink everything. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And they try and intellectualize everything. And then you get the person who just comes in and doesn't do any of that, just goes, oh, I'm just going to do this. And it's something that's so simple becomes so difficult. Why do you think that is? I think there are two, two things jump out. Uh, first and foremost, a lot of humanity seeks variety. They just need other things in their life. And so they buck rigid systems because they want variety. Mm, um, interesting. And, yeah. And I think that for, and I, 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 I can't leave that loop open because I also like variety, but I want to find variety within a structure. So if you're making a thousand sales calls and it's a scripted sales call, I want it to be scripted and I want the variety to be intonation. And I want to see, uh, or, or my response, right? That's the dance within a structured system. And that's how you have to find variety, the different people, the different personalities, et cetera. Um, but that plays to the second point, which is I think that uh, people don't, we have short memories 
And so we don't realize uh, that our bias is getting in the way of the actual statistics at play. So we make 10 calls and think that this script doesn't work. These bullets don't work, right? Or we have a marketing campaign and we think the initial thousand, 10,000, hundred thousand million emails didn't work. And the, the, the data set just wasn't big enough, right? We didn't give it enough time to work itself out, right? Um, I think those are the two things. I think those are the two things that pop out anyway. Yeah, no, it's a fascinating thing. I've just seen it happen a lot. And it's, I think for me, it's also this idea that um, you, you know, mentioned the word variety. I think we also get distracted with things and sure. we have expectations. <laughs> There's a thing called the culture of immediacy, right? Which I think came off the back of the fact that you don't have to drive to a store to get to rent a DVD anymore. You can get whatever you want straight away. And Amazon's obviously accelerated that. But there's What's a DVD. I don't know. It's it's this little. I can probably get one out and show you. I was trying to show. I was trying to show a tape, a cassette tape, to my it. kids the other day, right? And that was embarrassing, right? But anyway, how about a Blu-ray? Do they still the, exist? I don't know. Oh no, no. What was the? What were the giant ones? Laser discs. Oh god. I know. Nobody's going to know what those are in five VHS years if they know now. Beta. Anyway, yep. the I, <laughs> the idea that you can get whatever you want now is exacerbated both across consumer and business worlds, right? And and to some yep. extent, we're talking here about success, right? So people have this expectation that it should just be there, right? It should yep. just happen. And to your point, they, they because it's not coming, they don't think it's ever going to come. So they try something new, but by trying something new and not following the process, they make the whole thing much harder than it needs to be. So I think it's totally agree. That as well. But your second point was, was around hard work. You said that you could, you know, work or outwork anybody. Where does that come from? Um, that's a real good question, man. I think ultimately my father probably, um, I mean, he is a, a very structured, um, disciplined person in a lot of, uh, ways. Uh, and, and I don't know, you know, I kind of, I always, I tend to believe that it's rooted in childhood somewhere. That's sort of a cornerstone belief of mine. Yeah. Um, but I also think that at this point in my life, now I have a lot of data points that point to that being accurate, that point to, hey, if I just keep doing it, it'll work itself out. And But the big data set that I use for that is sales, right? It is that I had this multi-year period of time where I was doing more sales than other people. And I was doing more sales and my closing rate was high, but not the highest. My average order was high, but not the highest, but I did more appointments. I made mm -hmm. more phone calls, right? Activity levels, we used to call that in my world. The idea that Absolutely. you didn't have to worry about closing if you had high activity because the the closers, if you like, will just drop through to hit your target, yeah. hit your quota. And I think I actually did learn that all from sales. I think that the, you know, the, the biggest contributing factor to my um, dedication and follow through and hard work was this reinforcement loop through sales. And now I try to learn from, I've tried to learn from that sales company and mechanism throughout my life um, because it was such a good system and it would just keep people engaged and they had the right contests and the right weekly meetings, right? And the right KPIs to track. And they got people juiced, right? To keep making the calls. Um, but that was the beginning for me of like a serious cycle of, oh, I can just work harder and get the outcome that I want. Do you still have that philosophy today or have you started to leverage that a bit more? You know, it's crazy. I was talking about this uh, this morning. Well, 
one, what I was talking about this morning is, uh, it's easy to hit different plateaus of success in life and get complacent and lose, uh, that memory of, I need to keep the output. I need to keep the activity going. Um, but did you mean stop producing independently and leverage through a team or other people? Is that where you were going? Yeah. Well, it's kind of one of the things I explore a little bit on this show is as you go through the different phases of a business growing. And for me, there's four, four very distinct phases. And I, I talk about it slightly differently to, than other people. And it's just, it comes from um, my private equity background as well. But it's, it's the point of who you are and what you become through the phases, mm. right? Differentiates how high you can go. So mm. you see this, the classic example, right? Of this is like, you'll see someone like Larry and Sergey from Google. They could take the business to a certain level, but they had to bring in a different CEO at, you know, at, at the face to then take it to the next level because they couldn't, they couldn't transition their identity and capability to the next phase of what that business needs. So it's kind of underpinned in, in that context is to say, as you start to kind of, you know, you, being out there, being brilliant at sales, activity levels, discipline, all of that, that's a core strength of yours. But as you started to grow easy pay direct, how has that started to change? Man, that's well, a great question. <laughs> yeah, it's a it great question. Well, and, and truth be told, um, it's uh, it's an evolution. So um, a couple of years ago, uh, my uh, there are two stories tied together. I've had a business coach for probably four or five years, and I'm like his charity case. Like like he coaches John Mackey, the founder of uh, Whole Foods, and like oh, wow. cool, like ex president, and like some other fancy people. Um, but we get along. We have a similar uh, type of personality. And years ago, uh, I was considering selling Easy Pay Direct. And he said, well, what are you going to do next? <laughs> and I said, I don't know. You know, I'll start another company. And he said, okay, well, you know, like how long is it going to take you to grow the company? And I said, well, it'll probably be faster than this one, right? And he said, okay. So then you get to a certain point what's going to happen? And he was just walking me through this, but I said, I'm going to run into the same fucking problems that I'm having right now. Boom. And he said, wouldn't it be easier to learn how to get through the problems now, instead of starting a whole new company only to find yourself struggling with the same thing that you are now? I said, man, that's really an interesting point. And so I've been building the company since. Um, Years later, when, when, when was that? When was that first conversation? Just give us a bit of a time check on that. That was probably two. Uh, probably six years ago. Probably 2017. You said you've had the business a decade, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. So, and it's all bootstrapped, and it was you know slow and steady growth because that's all I knew. Back to your identity, right? So we, you know, we had a, a conversation uh, a few months ago about your background and um, with lots of money being present to grow companies. Uh, and also smaller teams that you've grown. Uh, but the the paradigm, what I'm what I've learned over time, and this is, I think, a, a point that's gonna be really relevant, is that that mentality changes when you are a solopreneur, fully bootstrapped, and your your own lifestyle is tied to the output of the company versus a funded scenario where you've got a fixed salary for X amount of time. And everything's going back to grow the company, right? And you're gonna you're gonna live no matter what. Uh, different approaches. It's different. But, I mean, the 
you finish your point, then I'll then I'll kind of overlay what I was getting at with the question. I would like to, yeah. Uh, I mean, I'd like to hear that. Uh, he said to me probably two years ago, exactly what you pointed at, which was this idea of you're working really hard to accomplish things. And he said, "Do you feel uh, successful?" And I said, "I don't really know what that means. I don't think so, though." Sometimes I feel successful. And he said, what makes you feel successful? My response was getting shit done. <laughs> goes, back to your, uh, goes back to what you imprinted beforehand, right? About yes. working people. Yes. What he said to me stuck. And I'm still trying to learn the lesson because I am very good at falling on my face a lot of times before I learn a lesson. Uh, but he said, what if success wasn't getting shit done, what if success was only getting things done if you also taught somebody else how to do it? And the paradigm shift for me was that my focus needed to be on uplifting a team to be able to accomplish the things, not me personally accomplishing them. And that was sort of a leadership shift. It's also the who, not how philosophy, right? This idea that if you have a problem, you've got to ask that question first. Right. Which is, which is, yeah. it's interesting. So, so the dimensions just to kind of share them with you, cause I think it's an interesting point to bring them in and, and it kind of plays into the conversation we had on your show. Right. So, so for me, there are four phases, right? You have the startup phase, you have the scale up phase, right. And, and they're quite distinct points of difference. Sometimes you can put revenue to them and, or size of team, but you know, I, for me, it's more about if we're talking about the leadership capability of the person in charge, be that the founder, or they might be the CEO or whatever. I can explain why I mean the difference. You know, you, you have to kind of understand where you naturally fit first and foremost, and you can evolve all the way through the chain, but it's quite rare. It's quite rare for someone to take a business from startup all the way through scale up. And then we've got value expansion, which comes after that. And then you have, you know, the process into what I call the exit, right? So, so there's a bit where there are different phases, but if you get a, a company that goes from zero to a billion, right, quite often there's quite big transitions of leadership to be able to do those things. And what it comes down to is this, let's say you're great at startup, right? Just to put that out there, right? You're, you, you, everything about you is the hustle, um, the discipline, right? You're, or you're awesome at it. doesn't mean you can't shift into scale up, but the definition of scale up, you know, in the business context is the ability to get things done through people, people in process to be precise. But if that's not you, right, or you don't understand that it has to be you to go take the business through the next level, the business will always hit a ceiling. Yeah. And that's why, that's why a lot of startups fail. It's not because of resources. It's usually because of that shift, that, that jump, if you like, that leap is, is not understood at that stage by that, that founder. Yeah, I have a I have a friend in Austin, um, Tucker Max. Have you met Tucker? You no, Tucker? the name rings a bell actually, but oh, um, it, sure. it probably rings a bell because he wrote some amazing New York Times bestsellers like 15 years ago. And oh, what were they? They're fully irreverent, fully irreverent books. One of them Tucker is called Max. "I Hope They Serve Beer in Hell." Oh, um, <laughs> I think I've I've definitely I, heard the names. It must be from from these conversations uh, and whatever. Hilarious books, uh, but know, yeah. he's in a very different chapter of life now. Um, but he's still totally irreverent. Uh, and he owns, he runs a company. Well, he started a company um, that's now called Scribe. And oh, they that's write I books. Know. Yeah. Um, so 
uh, they wrote um, David Goggin's first book. Because um, I had his business partner me. on my show very early doors. Um, Zach his... Oberon? No, there's or another... Javon. Javon. Javon McCormick, yeah. So yeah, Javon is now on... the CEO. Yeah, I had him on. A... He was like in the first year. So we're talking four years ago I had him on. Yeah. Well, so Javon is, uh, I had him on a couple months ago and he's, he's, he's like the definition of a CEO, right? He's this charismatic leader. You know, he's a people person. He's empowering people at a phase, right? Or at a certain stage of business, but absolutely, Tucker, uh, brought him in to be the professional CEO of the company because he realized that he was not a, C a real CEO, as he would say, quote, uh, quote unquote, real CEO. And he said, what I realized was that I was really good at seagull management. And I said, what's seagull management? He said, oh, I just fly in and shit on people and then take off. I was like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm pretty good at that too. I need, I need to work on that. Well, there is the thing that a lot of, a lot of the times when you look at the definitions of these different roles, like there's Gino Wickman goes into whole visionary and integrator. And then you've got, um, I think Tony Robbins does the artist, the entrepreneur and the leader or something like yep. that. And like that. And the leader, the leader is often the CEO, right? You know, sometimes the, the the person, if you think about from a military context, it's not often the sort of captain or the lieutenant. It's like the drill sergeant, right? The person who has to make sure that everything is delivered with precision. But most of the leadership, certainly not the visionary leadership, but the kind of getting stuff done leadership sits in that type of role. I mean, I was at, um, at Getty, which we spoke about um, on your show, and... And everyone who was employed, even up to sort of very senior roles, were operationally precise. They weren't there to kind of come up with new ideas and be the vision and all this. They weren't in that. That wasn't the person. And so, so I think it's interesting. I think it's a very um, good move. Like if you can identify that early, because this this is my belief, right? And I think it's an interesting one. Sometimes people think that you should go out there and um, work on your weaknesses, right? To use that term mm. that no one uses anymore or, or no one, no one has weaknesses. Of course you bloody do. We have things that we're not <laughs> the best at, right? We all do. Right. Mm -hmm. My philosophy has been actually the opposite, which is double down on your strengths because a, you're probably good at them and you like them, et cetera, et cetera. You know, potentially you have the ability to be world-class possibly in that, right. For lots of different reasons, mm -hmm. but the idea to try and become broad across everything, I just think is unrealistic. Now that's a polarizing view. I get it. But it's it's served me well, I think, in my career to be able to play that lane. Yeah, man. Um, I I have things that I like about both approaches, and I think how you outlined, uh, you know, double down on your strengths. I like how you outlined it because it it's sort of the um, the the lighthouse versus the tugboat analogy, which is a tugboat has to put in a hell of a lot of energy to get something to move. And that is working on the things you're not good at, right? It feels like worth and you're grinding to get it done. And little by little, you can make improvements. Um, the lighthouse just shines and pulls boats where it wants it to go. And I think that that ease of execution happens when you really like what you're doing and you're good at what you're doing. Um, I'm just, I refer to myself as a recovering perfectionist. And so the things I'm that good at, I'm like, shit, I just need to get better. Um, so I struggle <laughs> with it. Yeah, it is. It, it's a really hard thing, I think, for a lot of, and again, we can talk about it in business and in life, but it's a really hard thing for people to get their head around. Um, I think also, like, you know, I'm getting close to 50, and I think it was also indoctrinated in me growing up 
that you had to kind of be, be more balanced. And if I think even through my corporate career, like early doors, it was like, oh, well, you know, here's your 360 appraisal. You're not very good at these areas. Oh. So we're going to give you a coach or training or whatever. And I'm like, yeah, but I'm really good at that. Why don't you just make me just do that? <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's, it's a, as I said, it's a polarizing thought, but it's a, an interesting one for people listening in. It is. I think specifically as an entrepreneur, it's interesting because if I back out and think about sales, I didn't need to fucking be good at everything. I needed to be good at sales. And so I have this um, admiration of killer salespeople, but really anybody that's passionate about one thing. Mm -hmm. And um, I have a I have a very good friend who, and I think this is a really relevant lesson in any high level business role that you have in your company. I have a very good friend who has an amazing spouse, amazing wife. She's so fun. She's like this free spirit, right? She's the life of the party. She gives everybody hugs. She's so caring. Um, you are hard pressed to get her anywhere within a 45 minute window of being on time. She's going to be late, <laughs> right? And my friend is like rigid, disciplined, structured. And so it drives him crazy it, or it used to. And we were having a conversation one day and I said, here's the thing, man, all of the things that you love about her, this free spirited nature, um, the energy that she brings to her in a room, the nurturing component, her being this mother to your kids, those can't exist if she's also going to be rigid in her approach and on time all the time, they are inextricably tied. So you have to realize that that thing that bothers you is actually enabling the skill set on the other side. And That's I think when I think side. about, wow, I do, for me, it was like this powerful revelation of thinking I've got salespeople and it's okay that they're a damn mess and they don't update the CRM and somebody has to watch them to make sure they do it because they can still really sell. Right. There was this but one guy I work with. Um, he, I, I, we don't know this to be a hundred percent true, but we believe he was the highest paid person in the company, like well and truly above the CEO and everyone else. And he managed all of the big partnerships. So the NBA, the NFL, the Academy Awards and stuff like that. And the funny thing was like everyone else had certain structure around their offices and things like that. This is when people used to, you know, work in an office in New York city. But he just had like this crazy, crazy office, right? And he was never there, right? No one ever saw him. He just kind of rock in, rock up. You know, everything about the guy was the opposite culturally, actually, interestingly, of the business. But I remember speaking to the CEO and I said, why, why do you kind of, you know, tolerate this guy? And he says, because he is, for what he does, he is the best in the world. He is the Michael Jordan of what he does. There is no one better, right? So... Whether, whether he, you know, turns up and wears the right uniform, has the right office, does all those sort of things, we just let him play his lane. And I thought that was interesting, like particularly because the company wasn't a small company, but there was an appreciation of that was, that was where that person was. We're not going to try and change them to be anything other than they are. And I remember him being at the company. I was there for about four years. He'd been there 15 years up to that point. And I believe he lasted there over 20 years. I think he's left now, but like, you know, just, just an interesting, again, distinction around this stuff. Yep. Different approaches, man. And, uh, I'm, I want to be, I'm a structured person. I want to have this structure in place and have a roadmap to the outcome, to the goal. And so I find myself, um, 
very conflicted with those people in particular in inside of the ecosystem where I'm like, you're not, you don't fit into the structure. <laughs> you're not part of the master plan. Um, so I'm trying to get more appreciation around that in all areas of life, but. Let, well, let's segue then. Let's segue into something a bit different. So, so endurance sports, ultra running, we connect on that. So we had a good conversation on your show. My, my feeling about that stuff. So to, to sort of bring your last point into this, right. You know, what, what, what's that famous Mike Tyson quote, you know, everyone has a plan until they're punched in the face, yes. something like that. Something like that. Yeah. Like if, if you go and run, like, I mean, what, what's the furthest you've run? Uh, uh, 45 i did the rim to rim to rim oh okay year. cool that's fun okay that's okay cool so so how structured do you go into something like that do you take the same um, philosophy in or i mean i'm just curious about how you approach something you're really passionate about you know which is outside of the world of business and entrepreneurship yeah it's interesting i think that i'm i need I need, if something scares me enough, I'm going to have a very structured approach to make sure that I don't fail. Have you ever failed? I mean, it, it depends on what you mean by fail, but well, do you, sure. well, it's, it's a personal, it's not from the outside in, from the inside out. Do you feel that you have? Oh yeah. Um, yes. And I think that the, I think generally speaking, the, the biggest failure for me is not committing because I'm afraid of failing. Mm, okay. Right. I think that there are things that are bigger, ambitious goals that I think I'm not certain that I can do that. So I'm not, and this isn't a conscious thought, right? But I'm not certain that I can pull that off. And so then I rationalize like, oh, that's going to take so much time or so much energy, or I give some reason why I'm not going to do it. But I also know subconsciously that those are really the things that make me light up and are what I live for. So my, my sort of the reason that I would do these ultra marathons and, you know, did, did them regularly, like, like every week I was doing a marathon for a while and then I was Crazy. training for these big ones. But it, you know, what was interesting, the reason I did it is I did most of that running for over a period of a decade when I was well entrenched in the whole private equity world. And there were two things that that world is extremely structured and, and almost militant in, in certain ways, right? You have to act a certain way, be a certain way in a high pressure situation. So I wanted to put myself in a situation which was the opposite of that to some extent, right? You know, I wanted to get myself into, into a situation where I could really extend the boundaries that were kind of put around me. The other thing that I reflect on now, which I think is, is still interesting. I'm still trying to get my head around it is I would enter things where the absolute reality was failure. Mm. Right. And I, I, I still haven't, I bring, I bring this up here because I think it's an interesting conversation to have with you. Cause I, I haven't worked this out yet. <laughs> I'm mm. like, why did I do that? But like, if I did like, you know, I, I did 50, hundred K races, hundred mile race, um, that sort of stuff. So I, I kept going up the chain because I wanted to get to a point where the outcome was absolutely like, I, I have no, no real belief necessarily that I'm going to do this. And I think it was because I felt the most alive at that point. Mm. Interesting. Uh, so interesting. So my, the big ones for me, uh, I get into them and there's this, there's this window 
where it's scary enough to me that I think I'm not sure that I can do this. There's a mm. high likelihood I can't do this, um, but I can still see a path to potentially it. executing it. Right. Okay, um, so you know you you know that you know that there is a way of doing it, but you don't necessarily know that you're going to be able to do it or achieve. Correct. It. Yeah. Correct. I get that. Yeah. So before we started recording, you mentioned um, Jesse Jesse Itzler, and so. Can I tell you a story about him? Yeah, I was looking on your website because I mean, also because I know you know you talk about relationships a lot, but there's a really cool section on your website, um, which is bradwymatt.com. If everyone wants to go have a look, <laughs> um, which is called adventure. In fact, you've got adventure and entrepreneurship as the main bits. Yeah. So I assume you're going to talk about Everesting. I am. Yeah. <laughs> so go for it. So Jesse uh, was speaking at, I had not met him and he was speaking at one of these entrepreneur groups that I'm a part of and he's on stage. And as I do with these things, I'm sitting in the back of the room drinking tequila and he starts talking about, somebody asked him what the next crazy thing he's going to do is. And he said, Oh, I rented a mountain and I'm going to challenge people to climb the mountain, the height equivalent of Mount Everest. Yeah. And I immediately had a visceral reaction to this. And I think I verbally said, ah, shit. Because <laughs> in that instant, I thought that's my kind of crazy. Um, so fast forward a few months past, I'm sitting at a bar in uh, Denver and I'm talking to, I had at some point filled out a little form on their website and they were forcing, they'd never done this before. And now they, now they made a business out of it, but uh, they're forcing everybody to talk to Jesse's business partner, Mark uh, Hodelik. And I never met Mark, but Mark and I immediately hit it off on the phone because we're a similar kind of crazy. <laughs> um, and Mark has done Leadville, which is a terrifying hundred mile you know foot yes, race yes, with yes. tons of elevation gain at altitude. Um, so I'm talking to Mark and I say, "Okay, so how many times do you have to run up this mountain?" And he said, uh, "17 times." I said, "Okay, 17 times." And how long does each lap take? It's an hour. And actually, what he said was, "We think it's about an hour." And I said, you think it's an hour? <laughs> it's such and an arbitrary thing though, isn't it? Like you and I might be able to do it in X amount, but you know. <laughs> true, true. So he said, yeah, I've done it once and Jesse's done it twice. And I said, you've done it once, Jesse's done it twice. Nobody's ever done it 17 times and you're putting an event on? And he said, yeah. And I said, okay, well, an hour, 17 laps. How long are you giving people to do this? And he said, 36 hours. And I said, 36 hours? Mark's response was, uh, uh, do, do you think that's not long enough? Now, I had had a few Manhattans, and my drunk ass responded and said, motherfucker, I could do that shit twice in 36 hours. Oh, no. Right. And as soon as I said it, he said, oh, yeah? And I said, well, I've had a few Manhattans. Maybe we'll talk about this tomorrow. And Mark said, or you could get your foot out of your mouth and step the fuck up. So we're seven weeks from the event. <laughs> Sorry. No. Oh, yeah, this is hilarious. I, I can yeah. just imagine like this is so so the the thing to note down, everyone listening to this is don't jump on a call like this when you've had a lot of alcohol, <laughs> right? Because you're gonna say something or do something crazy. Mind you, I think this has probably got a good ending, hasn't it? <laughs> Listen, no great story ever started with a salad. Okay, that's right. So I so I we're seven weeks out from the event. And immediately, this is the this is the frame of 
numerically, mathematically, this is possible. If every lap takes an hour, it's 34 laps instead of 17, that's 34 hours, but there are 36 hours available to do it. Now, How two long extra- is a lap? Just so we can get some, I, I understand that we're going up a hill, like a mountain yes. sort of thing, but yeah. how long is a lap in terms of miles or whatever? I think the laps here were like 1.3, 1.4 miles. Right, but, but you're going up like steep. 20, yeah, but 2,300 feet in elevation or something. Can you run it? Or is it like a, a walking hands on knees, fast pace? It's a, uh, you can sort of jog the first hundred yards and then the pitch escalates to the point where it's like a really aggressive hike. And then the very top is super steep, right? The very top is it's a black diamond ski run. So (laughs) that's, that's what you're doing. (laughs) Um, So, and so two extra hours, it's 36 hours, 34 laps. I'm thinking two extra hours. That sounds like a lot, but if you do the math on that, that's, four minutes per lap that you have to spare an hour and and four minutes per lap basically is what you've got yeah right off off, off, and basically a guy that's done it once and another guy that's done it twice (laughs) oh you didn't 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 bet money did you did you on this bro there was no like no you put cash or a car or anything (laughs) like that or a house (laughs) just my pride Right. You should have Just bet the Atlanta Hawks pride. basketball team. You said, listen, you know, that would have been motivation. I, so Jesse, give me your basketball team and I'll give you my car. By the way, guys, we Jesse would have gone for that, but yeah, we haven't been drinking by the way. We're just having some fun. Um, okay. So keep going. So you've, you've given this like hour and four minute thing, right? And you've said yes, obviously, because the, you know, he's, he's called you out, which is cool. And so we're seven weeks out. Right. So, so seven weeks, like, and you know, I had, I was running a little, but like I was probably running 10, 15 miles a week, you know, four or five wow. mile runs. Oh yeah. I'm not equipped for this. So not like 80, hundred mile weeks, like you would for no. some of the, oh my God, but you were a pretty fit guy anyway. Were you cycling? Were you swimming? Were you doing other stuff? I was lifting. So I was lifting weights, but my cardio base was way down And just like frame of reference. Um, if some, if you were training like, what's the normal, how long do people normally train for an Ironman or something? Oh God, I haven't done an Ironman, but I, I can tell you, I mean, some people can train, if you want to do a good time in a marathon, right? You know, from, let's say you've got a reasonable base, it's about four months, right? You can, yeah. if you're fit, you can do it in three months and just focus on that. And a lot of people just run a marathon from no training in sort of three to four months. But I like to think of a cycle like we're talking about here to compete in an event, probably four to six months starting with your base training and all that sort of stuff. But yeah. And and that's like, (laughs) no, and a marathon is, you know, three, four hours. And we're talking about a 36 hour thing. Yeah. So I'm like, shit, okay, let's figure out how to accelerate the pace. So I go through the, I go through an intense training regimen where it's like, you talk about structure and do I stick to structure? It's, you know, weekend one, weekend two, the time in between weekend three, four, five, I plan the whole thing out. And in the latter uh, days, I'm climbing this 60 story building in the stairwell with a weighted vest um, and an oxygen deprivation mask for hours um, to just try to get steps in and like get, you know, time on feet basically. Um, was was there an elevation issue here as well in terms of, you know, like Leadville you said is actually at altitude. I suppose you're starting 
Oh, where was it, it first? Where was the race? It was low. So now they do them a couple different places uh, yeah. in the country, in the U.S., but this one was Vermont. And so it was like 2,000 to 4,000. Elevation wasn't really a consideration. This is pure endurance, right? Um, and But I'll, I'll fast forward through the training. So I did a bunch of training. Um, I get there, and what keeps me going in the training is this consistent thought of, you know, if I mess up one training session, one day, it's going to potentially derail me and I won't accomplish it. I'm afraid that if I don't get, if I don't utilize every available moment, day, time to sleep, I'm going to sacrifice the possibility of me being able to accomplish this. Right. Got it. And that's what keeps me going. That's the drive here. Um, so same, I guess same there, drive in business, just to segue into that quickly. No, I think that's exactly it. Right. I think that's exactly the point is like, I'm trying to find the thing that, isn't so big that it feels unrealistic. So I did the math. I could see the path. I could lay it out, but I was unwilling to compromise on the input, the activity, because I was afraid that even with maximum activity, it may or may not happen. Mm, okay. Right. But I knew there's a chance. So I think the takeaways for this are that I, I go into it um, blazing and I'm like, I'm in my own world, right? There are 150 people at this event and something like 56% of them end up completing the 17 laps. How Just, many people were doing it twice? Were you the only one who'd flagged that? No, yes. Nobody has done it twice to my knowledge ever again. And but even in that event, like, you know, did, did the guys, the organizers knew that you'd signed up for this double, so to speak? Just like sort of whispers in the background. Right. right. So it was unofficial. It wasn't on the roadmap. They weren't supporting it for double. You know, like there was no consideration to how are we going to take care of Brad's stupid ass? You know, it was just, I was just doing my thing. Right. Right. Um, and so I get seamlessly, I get to about 20 laps. And so I just power through the night and, um, you know, 20 hours in sure enough, each lap is taking roughly an hour. Um, twenty-one. 22 and I just hit a wall. And I mean, I get to the point where I'm sort of um, delirious. Like I would pass people and I was unsure if I was verbally speaking to them or something was, I was just talking to myself <laughs> in my head. Um, uh, I've been, I mean, there. I was out there. Yeah. <laughs> and I had this, this radiant pain. I mean, in a lot of places, but this radiant pain in my right knee and it was every single step. I just felt, shh this electric spike. And I started having these thoughts as I know you can relate to, um, which were, what if I do permanent damage to my knee? And then I like future paced my life and saw myself at 75 years old, walking with a cane, talking to somebody and them saying, how'd you mess up your knee? Why do you have a limp? And I was like, well, I felt like I needed to climb this mountain 34 times in a row. How stupid would that be? And these are really rational thoughts, but what kept me moving, and this was like, this is a lesson that I've taken with me in so many other activities, was before I ever got started, I thought not only is it okay to get hurt, but it's likely that I will. And that agreement was in place ahead of time. Right. That's interesting. So you think already you'd already managed psychologically the fact that this was a likely event 
so that when you experience it in the moment, which could be different, difficult. I mean, I know for those who've never done this type of endurance event before, and by that, I mean a multi-hour event, right? They're all very similar in terms of you get to a state. And in that state, it's at a very irrational state. It's almost like you're on drugs or something like that. Like it's an out-of-body experience in many cases, right? Yeah. Um, you can't remember sometimes the conversations you have at aid stations and things like that because you're in this really strange zone, right? Mm-hmm. So you predicted that potentially, and you had the conversation with yourself in a rational state, let's call it that. So what happens when you hit that point? You've already made the decision. Are you going to continue? How does it work? Yeah, that's exactly it. I think that I have a, I have a general belief in life now that you can, you should assess what the absolute worst case is and assess what the uh, absolute best case is. But you should recognize that neither of those are very likely to happen. And so when you think about contingency planning, what you need to plan for is not the absolute worst, but the likely worst, right? So the absolute worst in this case is like an earthquake, right? Or like, you know, uh, a cat loses a track and rolls down the mountain and crushes everybody, right? Those, those Those could happen, but they're not very likely. The likely worst is exactly what happened, which is I have some nagging injury that debilitates me. Um, that is not a far stretch when you train for seven weeks for a 36 hour event, right? Um, so planning that out ahead of time and already committing to this is okay. If this happens allowed me to let go of that thought instead of it running on loop forever and just keep moving. Was there a point in that, you know, trying to sort of, I suppose, plan if you like for the contingencies, was there a point where you would have stopped? I mean, obviously the yeah. cat rolling down the hill is a, is a stopping event, but, <laughs> but like, you know, when you were going through, okay, well, if this happens, I'm going to continue. If this happens, I'm going to continue. If that happens, I'm probably stopping. Did, no. did you, did you go into that detail or was that, am I getting too granular here? No, no. I think it's really good to be granular. And the answer is no, I did not. I did not allow the window of this is going to make me stop. And I think because I didn't, the threat of lifetime serious injury wasn't enough to have me stop because I had, while I hadn't gotten granular and said, well, if you know, an ACL or MCL tears, then I'm done. It was just no matter what, if there's pain, I'm continuing to go right now. Here's what I didn't plan for is, uh, we get to five. So I start at 2 PM on Friday, we get to 5 PM on Saturday and they, the state shuts down the mountain for the night mandatory shutdown. There's a long story to why this happens in ski mountains, but, oh, you know, it's a short story. They're, uh, paramedics, their rescue team is not trained to rescue people from the gondola in the middle of the night because it's in the dark. So okay. they have to shut down the mountain. So, so is this like a little first... sleep, a little sleeping break for everyone? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, for most people, it's just like, uh, you know, that's what you, what you would do. So I went straight through the first night and they had trucks that would drive us down the mountain because we're only running up it. So run up, truck down, run up, truck down. And And that was like pushing the envelope. And after they did one night of this, they said no more. So five o'clock, I've been going for now 40 hours or I've been awake for 40 and I've been going for whatever that is, 20. 27, I think, or 28 hours. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, Yeah. okay. Um, And I've only done 24 laps. And the next day they're open from 6 a.m. to two. So I only have eight hours left and I have 10 laps left to do. So 
and I and everyone had been taking me an hour. So I'm coming down the gondola and I do a Facebook live and I'm talking to people and they're like, you can do it. Like, don't quit. I'm like, I'm not, this is just math. Like mathematically, it's no longer possible to do this. And one of my points of failure in planning this thing was I didn't make a decision as to whether or not it made sense to follow through if it was no longer possible, big air quotes there. Um, And I should have. That would have been a good contingency plan. Fortunately, I had a variety of really good friends, but two in particular. One sent me a text message, one a really long voicemail with creative ideas on how to move forward. Now, the text message said, (laughs) uh, wasn't very creative. He just said, so I know each lap's taking you an hour, but what if you just did each one in a half hour? And I immediately looked at that and just put the phone away. And I was like, what a dick, you know? And I just kept on with my, it's five o'clock. I'm hurting from being uh, on my feet for 27 hours exercising, but I couldn't get that fucking thought out of my head. And so I hit the bed, I eat food, I shower, I hit an ice bath and I crash. And I am, I'm just like in pain on the ground through the night. And it's the kind of discomfort where I, in order to roll over, I would pick up my arm and pull my arm to the other side to roll my body because my my body was so fatigued. (laughs) But I woke up the next morning at 545 and crushed some food, ran to the starting line with a headlamp on. And that thought was in my head. What if I just could do each one and a half hour? And I thought, well, that's not possible, but let me see how fast I can do one lap. So I run and out, out the gates running. And I'm panting and my heart is thumping out of my chest. My heart rate is, you know, in the red zone and I'm starting to drip sweat. I get up to the top, kind of like hands on my thighs, panting, trying to catch my breath. And I look down at my watch, 33 minutes. And I had about a split second of victory in my head. And then the rest of that second was, well, I can't do that again. Took the gondola down and I thought, but maybe I can do it one more time. Same thing, run up the mountain, panting, hearts pumping out of my chest, wiping sweat from my brow, get to the top of the mountain, 31 minutes. Wow. And I'm like, shit. This is cool. Well, I can't do it eight (laughs) more times. Yeah, can't do it eight more times, but maybe one more. And I just keep doing that one at a time. And by about the seventh lap of the day, so I have three left, I realize that mathematically, this is now, I'm in it. Now I can absolutely do this barring some horrific accident, right? As long as I don't uh, bonk entirely, like get debilitated all of a sudden, um, I can do this. And I'm coming down the gondola by myself, sitting there alone. And I have that realization and I just break down crying by myself. And this is a very strange experience for me because I don't really... I don't have that emotional release available. I wish I did. I just, it doesn't happen for me often. And so immediately my brain says, why the fuck are you crying? And the only response that I could come up with was I was proud of myself. And I was proud of myself for following through on something, even though I wasn't sure that I was going, even though I thought it was impossible because the effort and the output to do the exercise to get better was more important than whether or not I actually did 
the thing I set out to do. There you go. Imagine all those people looking at you running up this thing in 30 minutes and then show off. <laughs> well, you know, what's funny is yes. And when I, when I finished, I got to the bottom and, and there's like, and this is the reality of things like this. And it's the reality of business goals, personal goals. So I finished, but I'm like to the last minute, 98% of the people at the event had already left. Yeah. So they're breaking down the events, like all the tents are getting taken down. There's seven people standing around the board at the end. The staff is packing up, but the seven people that are there at the end are like, holy shit, what did you just do? And Jesse uh, came and shook my hand and we were talking for a minute and he said, yeah, man, you had a lot of naysayers, but they can't say shit now. And I remember <laughs> hearing that and thinking, and I think I told him, I was like, did I? And he was like, oh, yeah, a lot of people were talking shit. They were like, who's this guy? Why the fuck does he think he has to do it twice? What's he trying to prove? And I thought, oh, man, isn't that interesting? Well, that's I all, all this is a really good sort of paradigm metaphor for life, right? Yeah, I didn't even see him in this case. And how important was it in this scenario for me to not see them? Because had I seen them, had I listened to them, had I heard them, it would have had an impact on my ability to execute. But it was blinders, right? It was oh, a yeah. race with myself. And I was going to say, you know, it's one of those situations when you put, because I, I, just to sort of summarize a little bit of this, I think it's an interesting, um, it's an interesting story that has parallels across lots of things, right? When you're, when you have a really big goal, right? And you stay extremely focused on the outcome of that goal, right? Quite often you do, you do get into that flow state, right? I've had people on the show before who talk about there's actually triggers that you can create to do that, right? And so those people were definitely there, right? Saying that you couldn't do this. And you know what? You probably saw them, but you didn't connect with what was going on because you were so focused on, particularly towards the end, I imagine. Yes. So it's an interesting thing, isn't it? Isn't it like, you know, around what we can do and achieve? I mean, what did you, what did you learn from that experience? And what have you, what have you, sort of taken forward from that, that you've applied to other areas of your life? There are two big things. Um, and I hit on both of them, but the, the first was you have to spend the time. You can use the word visualizing, you can use the word planning, but you have to spend the time thinking about how you're going to handle both success and failure in the future. Does success mean that you're going to stop and take a break? You're going to pivot. You're going to adjust. Are you going to get there and try to figure out what the fuck you're supposed to do next? If you plan ahead of time, hey, once I hit this benchmark, I'm going to do the next thing. It will serve you. Just like if I hit this failure point, I'm going to do another version, right? You need to pre-plan that stuff. And it serves you greatly to think that stuff through in a state of mind that is not the emotional state of the future. Yeah, got it. Right? And I think that's a big one. Um the other one is committing to the action versus the goal. And that's a lesson from sales, but the commitment was, should have been that I was going for 36 hours, whether I hit the goal or not. And I had this moment of doubt in the middle because I did not definitively decide that. I happened to make it happen, but you got to commit to putting the output out there and not worry about where it takes you because it is the journey, as cliche as that sounds, it is the, jur the journey and the activity that you learn from, right? And you will produce something. 
Yeah, but that's something that, you know, even spending this hour with you, that kind of, you know, I can see that's a core thread of your DNA, right? Because it's, it's a thread that goes through both conversations, you know, so quite neatly, we've talked, you know, half the half of this conversation has been business related, and the other half has been endurance, sport, adventure related. But the thread that goes through the middle is the same, right? This idea yeah. of focused action, right? Like, you know, and, and to some extent, not overthinking the rest of it. Because because if I think back to what you said at the very beginning, where you said, you know, I just got given the playbook and I just executed the playbook and I didn't quite realize why you wouldn't even think about doing that, right? You know, to paraphrase your words. Yeah. And then at the end, you kind of did the same thing. Yeah. You know, you get the text, 30 minutes. Okay. You maybe thought well, that's not possible, but then you kind of just took action against that thought. Then you, you proved it was possible, right? And in fact, even improved the time, which is inc incredible. And, and then you just stayed focused on the next one and the next one and the next one until you got to the end. It's the same thing. Yeah. It is. And I think that the, the missing gap for somebody listening is, um, I also was trying to improve it every step along the way. Right. And that's mission critical. So like, and it's also what I said about variety, right? I'm trying to find the variety within it when you're doing <laughs> a 36 hour endurance event, or I mean, pick a, a three hour endurance event, right? If you're doing a long period of time, you got to give your brain something else to focus on. Um, and so, uh, one of the things that allowed me to improve speed at the end was nutrition. And as an endurance person, um, I mean, you know how important nutrition is. It's like, it's one of the big levers to allow your body to keep performing. Um, and somebody brought to light the fact that I was not consuming enough calories um, and probably not drinking enough water, despite the fact that I was nauseous from quote unquote eating too much and, you know, and drinking water sounded terrible in general. Uh, but I got on a regiment of every time I came down the mountain, I would just crush food and pound a quart of water. And that I think helped this this fuel to keep going. And similar in sales, when you're crushing numbers, you're not just doing the same thing over and over. You're trying to improve it each time, but little by little, right? Yeah. Um, well, you're, op you're optimizing what's working, right? And, yes. And sometimes, you know, it, it's interesting. One, one of the questions I want to finish with is, I'll get to it actually in a second, because it's an important question, I think, for people listening to this. But one thing I found is that as you, as you go through these various, you know, whether it's sales or whether it's, you know, what you were doing, um, not everything works, right? Not everything works. Like you try, you try different stuff out. So you're kind of innovating within the process as much as anything, which does provide, provide variety, but can also take you backwards. And to share a quick story of mine on this quickly, I remember when I was doing uh, the Vermont hundred mile, right? Which is um, mm. an interesting parallel considering your event was in Vermont. Yes. Um, I got to a point where similar to you, I was, the, the mental side was good. The emotional side had its moments because you kind of go up and down emotionally in these type of things. Uh, physically, I forgot to eat, which happens because you're kind of in this sort of deluded state, right? Yes. And <laughs> I got to a point where I, um, the only thing that could get me through to the end was watermelon, strangely. And, um, but I tried out all these different things beforehand that weren't working. Then I cracked it. I literally cracked it. I found that if I had watermelon at a certain point when I was feeling not great, I, I sped up. So I did what's called a negative split on the last half of the race to the front part of the race, which is crazy. Wow. Right? And the last I started, 50? I started off, 
in actually this was the Vermont 100k I, I took 100k, myself. It. It was 100k so 60-ish miles um, I started off in 45th place out of around about 250 runners in this event and I ended up 19th wow so I ran through so but the That's point awesome. I bring the point I bring that up here is I think you know as you're doing these things and you're kind of testing things out be it business or be it this sort of stuff you've also got to appreciate that it's not always going to work but I love I love the mindset piece that you've kind of gone through here right by focusing on the action and and staying committed to the action preparing in advance all the outcomes risks opportunities etc cetera, etc cetera. that that can be that can be sort of used across many things not just the example we've talked about today yeah. Well, early lessons that I try to relearn over and over. <laughs> so final question as we, um, before we kind of get um, to the end of this, why do you, cause I, cause I'm, I love this question as well in terms of I'm trying to battle with it a bit. What is it about endurance sports in general, be that running marathons, you know, Ironman or that, that lends itself to, to sort of business leadership. Cause there's a, there's a statistic here that, you know, lots of entrepreneurs and lots of CEOs, are yeah. marathon runners like it's an uncanny like connection what do you think it is that joins those two things together <sighs> man um i think that uh you know i mean i my guess is as good as yours but what comes to mind is uh okay, well imagine actually, some, ask ask answer it personally because like you know you're a successful entrepreneur and you're doing that so why do you yeah do i think that it's for me one of them, one of the things I get from it is that uh, it it teaches me a couple big things. One is that I'm always capable of continuing moving. Um, and one of my mantras in endurance is, uh, is slow down, but don't stop. So as soon as you give yourself a data point and it feels good, you better believe that you're going to seek that one out again. Mm, and yep, if, the, if the data point is when I get tired, I can stop and it feels good. You're going to be tired a lot in this endurance thing. So you're giving yourself permission to feel good, to stop and feel good. So instead of stopping anytime that I'm hurting like that, I slow down a little, right? That's, that's the, the lowest I'll go is slow down a little. Um, and I just think there are so many parallels in the rest of life and in business in particular. Um, you get in a um, shitty conversation. You have somebody on the team that you have a hard time communicating with. You don't abandon it, right? Or you don't fire them or avoid them. You revisit it and you keep the communication moving, right? Um and it, it applies to so many different parts of business, but it's this reminder of this is the long game I'm playing and let me see what I can do to navigate through it. And I know I can because, man, I have a lot of data points indicating that at this point. <laughs> see, I think just to build on that a little bit, I think it's also you learn a lot about who you are and what you can be and what you can become, et cetera, through these types of challenges, right? And, Definitely. And I found for me that I by putting myself through those things when I used to turn up to the boardroom, right. Of different businesses I ran or whatever. Um, because I learned so much about myself in the hours that I put into the training, the running, all that. 
um, my self-awareness, my confidence, my ability mm. to make decisions under pressure, mm. all of those things were just optimized. And there was also a belief, I think, that came from it as well, because, you know, a lot of people say when you run your first marathon, you feel like Superman or Superwoman afterwards, you feel bulletproof, right? That, that term. <laughs> and, and I think that there is some truth in that. There's this, this idea that you've conquered something that you thought was impossible and that builds a grit and resilience in you. And if you take that into the world of business, entrepreneurship, probably relationships, other things, right? Um, it just elevates you, right? In those environments. So I think it's a combination of stuff. Yeah, I think that they fuel each other. Indeed. Well, listen, we should wrap because we've been going for well over an hour here, backwards and forwards, which has been great. Um, Brad, awesome, mate. Great to connect you. For people who don't know, we met on a boat in Cabo, hung out for a bit, <laughs> then, decided, then decided we'd do some podcasts. But, but you know, we, we basically met by getting into a room, right, where people hang out, where they have similar values, similar things, where they can learn from stuff. And I always encourage people to get themselves into rooms that intimidate them, scare them, because you get to meet awesome people like Brad and others. So listen, mate, thanks for coming on the show. It's been great. When can people, well, so where can people reach out if they want to get in touch with you, learn more about you? Yeah, I appreciate you having me. Um, I think that uh, Beyond a Million is our podcast, my podcast, which you can find anywhere. We interview eight, nine, 10 figure entrepreneurs on sales, marketing, operations, technology, and taxation. Um, specifically the stuff that works at scale that might not on the way up. Um, that's a good place to find out about me. And then Easy Pay Direct is an online payment company that I run. And so tons of time and energy goes into helping entrepreneurs optimize the way they accept payments online. Perfect. Perfect, perfect. Uh, and you, you can also go to, to your personal site, bradwymatt.com, if you want to look more at the Everlast, Everesting Times 2. There's a whole heap of climbing stuff and riding bikes and a really cool Fiji trip from Fuse back. So yeah, they can check you out there too. All Love right, Brad. It. Well, listen, mate, absolute pleasure. Um, looking forward to uh, connecting with you again soon. Thanks very much. Likewise, man. I appreciate it. Hey, thank you for listening to this episode of Scale Up with Nick Bradley. If you enjoy the show just as much as I enjoy creating it for you, then I'd really appreciate you leaving a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcasts. And while you're there, why not subscribe to the channel so you never miss a future episode? It really helps me. It helps the show. Plus, it makes it easier for others to access the content that I'm producing week in and week out. And finally, if you want more information about anything you heard in today's show or to find out how you can get more help in scaling up your business and your life, Click the link in the show notes now to learn about our coaching, mentoring, and mastermind programs. See you soon.